Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. Our broadcast today is entitled Power Over All Flesh. We're currently undertaking a series on statements of sovereign grace that Jesus made in John's Gospel. And if you recall, if you've listened to the past couple of broadcasts, we're not doing this in any particular order. We're not beginning in John 1 and going through John in chronological order, but we're really considering these just sporadically as they occur in the book of John. Thus far in the two messages that have gone before, we've considered John chapter 6, verse 37, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. And we considered last week the book of John chapter 10, in which Jesus made wonderful statements regarding his relationship with his sheep as the good shepherd, and also the fact that his sheep hear his voice. They know him. He gives unto them eternal life. They'll never perish, and no man shall pluck them out of his or his father's hand. And these are very strong statements of God's sovereign grace his sovereignty in salvation, the identity of his people in the world, and the fact that Jesus was sent into the world to save these people. Today, in today's broadcast, we're going to consider John chapter 17, primarily verses 1 through 5, though we'll consider other statements here and elsewhere in Scripture as well. We'll begin today by reading those passages. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. In this passage, Jesus is praying to his Father, and he is asking him to glorify him as he attempts to glorify his Father and what he's about to do. And in this prayer, as we will expound on in a moment, Jesus acknowledges that the Father has given people to him and that he has come to save the people which the Father gave to him. In other words, Jesus came to die for a very specific people, a people that, as we will see in a moment, was given to Christ before the foundation of the world. Now, let's go into the backstory of this passage. We've been doing that on this series. We give you the passage, give you a brief summary of that, and then look into what occurred prior to the statement that was made. And sometimes you find great insight into a statement as you look at the context. What happened before? What happened after? Was there anything said after to clarify that which was said before? And so many times, even in this series, the answer to that is, yeah, there's a lot that we can read before and after to help us understand these particular passages that we're studying. As far as the backstory, this is actually what should be considered in our verbiage the Lord's Prayer, because this is actually one of Jesus' prayers to his Father. 
what we know as the Lord's Prayer, and I'm sure we could all quote that from the KJV from our childhood, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That particular prayer is actually better referred to as the model prayer, because that's not actually a prayer that Jesus himself is praying to his Father for himself. Now, Jesus prayed to his Father all the time. Jesus was a man who spent hour upon hour in prayer to his Father. Jesus lived. He epitomized what it meant to be a person who prayed. He was a praying man. Now, Jesus is God. He's completely divine. He's the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God incarnate. But at the same time, he is a human being, body, soul, and spirit. He is verily God and verily man. And we don't diminish from either of those two natures that are joined together in this man, Christ We refer to this concept theologically as the hypostatic union. Some of the earliest wars in Christianity against heretics were fought over this subject, and some of the most dangerous heresies in the world today have to do with this subject of God becoming flesh and being completely God, while at the same time completely human. The second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, was incarnate and became a man. He prayed all the time as the God-man— But this is one instance in which we have a complete prayer by Christ offered to his Father, recorded for us in Scripture. We have the transcript of that, and so it's very precious, it's very amazing, and because of that, it's my opinion and the opinion of many others that this is actually the Lord's Prayer. This is something that he prayed for himself. Now, the model prayer, I think, is a better description, a better term for Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. We all know and can probably quote portions or all of that particular passage. That is better referred to as the model prayer. And there are actually some statements in that prayer that very much benefit us, but would not even be fitting for the Lord Jesus. For instance, in the model prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus never had a debt that needed to be forgiven either of other human beings or his Father, which is in heaven. Jesus never violated God's word. Jesus never did anything that offended his Father. Jesus never committed the first sin. He kept the law to a jot and a tittle. He never committed a single iniquity. And so because of that, the language, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus never had a debt to be forgiven for. But that statement and that prayer, again, is given for us. That models what we are to pray, how we are to pray. And you find versions of that, as Jesus taught it in the Mount, in Matthew, or in the Plains, in Luke. You find versions of that in the New Testament where Jesus instructed his disciples how to pray. We would be wise to study that prayer and implement its pattern and its model in our own prayer lives. But John 17 This contains for us the Lord's Prayer. And another term for this, other than the Lord's Prayer, would be the high priestly prayer. Because in this prayer, the Lord Jesus, the high priest of his people, makes intercession for his followers, for his disciples, because of the trouble that they're about to experience, because of the heartache and the heartbreak of seeing their Lord arrested and beaten and tried and crucified Their whole world is about to be turned upside down. And so Jesus not only warns them of that and braces them for that, 
though that forewarning fell upon deaf ears, as you'll see after Jesus is crucified and the disciples run and hide and they're discouraged and they say things like, we thought it was he who should redeem Israel, as those on the road to Emmaus said. Well, Jesus is warning them and he's praying for them. And because of that, because he's interceding on their behalf, this is also referred to as the high priestly prayer, John chapter 17. Number two in the backstory, this is a closing prayer, the closing prayer to a message that Jesus delivered after Passover and communion as he instituted the Lord's Supper the night that he was betrayed. You know that Jesus goes into this upper room that was prepared for Passover. He keeps the Passover with his disciples, the last Passover that God would ever accept. He keeps Passover with them. He keeps that feast of Passover. He would repurpose the unleavened bread and the wine that was there at Passover for the purpose of a New Testament ordinance, which is communion or the Lord's Supper. At some point in that, the disciples are arguing over which one of them should be the greatest. After Jesus mentions that one of them is a betrayer, the rest of them begin arguing over which one is his most devoted follower. And because they do that, he takes water, he pours it into a basin, he goes about and he begins to wash their feet and dry their feet and tells them, as he has done unto them, so should they do to one another, that we're not to be like the Gentiles that exercise lordship over each other, but we're to be the servants of each other in the church. We're to be serving individuals, not people who want to receive service. And that's contrary to much of what we believe and practice as Americans today. We seem to have this idea that I know what I want. I know what I deserve. I'm going to stomp my feet until somebody gives me exactly what I think I deserve, what's coming to me. Well, Jesus teaches us to be the exact opposite of that. In John chapter 13, in particular, we're to serve one another rather than stomp our feet and demand that we be served. Following this message and this prayer, Jesus would leave. He would sing a hymn and go out into the Mount of Olives. He would go into the Garden of Gethsemane. There he would pray all night. He carries Peter, James, and John with him to watch and to pray. And because of their fatigue, they fall asleep, as you and I probably would fall asleep as well. And overnight, at some point, that's when Judas Iscariot came with a band of soldiers having betrayed Jesus. They arrested Jesus and everything else that we know about the crucifixion, the trials of Jesus before Herod and Pilate and the Sanhedrin, all of that came to pass. It's amazing, though, that in the middle of all of this controversy that Jesus is about to go through, right before he's arrested, before he's beaten, before he's tried, before he's crucified, even then he is praying for his children and praying for his disciples. And to me, that's very moving. Because were I about to experience what Jesus experienced, I would be a train wreck. I would be nervous. I would be discouraged. I would be worried. I'd probably lose energy. I would just be at the point of fainting and falling asleep because of the trouble that I was going to experience. And yet Jesus, well, he's comforting his children and interceding on their behalf. Number three, regarding this message, as we're thinking about the backstory of this passage of Scripture, John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, this message, number one, comforts his people. As Jesus began this message in John 14, he began by saying, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
this message would predict his arrest and their persecution. Jesus will talk about how he's going to be betrayed, and he's going to talk about in this message how these people are going to be persecuted, they're going to be hated, because the world hates Christ, it's going to hate and persecute Christ's disciples. If Christ was beaten and lied about and crucified, then you can imagine that the followers of Christ, who are not as great as their master, they're going to be persecuted as well. And that's certainly the case throughout church history. And without the religious liberty that we have in America today, that would be the case for us as well. We would be persecuted by the enemies of Christ as we attempt to worship God, just like his children and disciples all through the New Testament era. Jesus also, as he talks about the fact that he's going away in this sermon, promised the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, who's going to come. And the Holy Spirit would be with them in a very personal, first-person sense, like Jesus had been with them. Now, parts of this message, the Upper Room Discourse, as we like to call it, from John 14 through the end of John 16, mirror some of the things that we've already discussed in this series on statements of God's sovereign grace throughout the Gospel of John. For instance, in John chapter 15 and verse 16, we read Jesus say, "'Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, and that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you.'" What does Jesus say in chapter 15 and verse 16? You've not chosen me, but I've chosen you. Now, this is much like the patriarchs. It's much like every other person that's been saved by God. This begins not with our choice of God, but with God's choice of us. God chose Noah. God chose Abraham. God chose Isaac. God chose Jacob. God chose Moses. God chose Joshua and Caleb. God chose Samuel. God chose David. Over and over and over, we find God choosing people. God chose the nation of Israel. Here, we read that the apostles hadn't chosen Christ, but Christ chose the apostles and ordained them that they should go and bring forth fruit and that their fruit should remain. This wouldn't be an effort in futility, as it were, but the church would continue throughout all ages. The work that these men did would endure even until today's time. Think about it. We're reading from the Gospel of John. Who wrote that? One of these men. This is fruit that God ordained that they would bring forth, and their fruit has remained. The fruit of the Apostle John has remained to this very present day because we have his writings. It was not fruitless, but it was fruitful, and we're blessed in what he did even today. His fruit has remained, as it were. And so John fifteen sixteen is a statement of God's sovereign grace, God's sovereignty and salvation, at the same time, conversely, John 15 and verse 19, if you are of the world, the world would love you, but because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. So that statement mirrors and echoes some of the things that we looked at from John chapter 10, for instance, and John chapter 6. In John 10, we read that people believe not because they're not of his sheep. In John chapter 6, we read that no man can come unto Christ except the Father draw him we cannot come to God without God moving on us first. And so notice what he says about the world all through this upper room discourse. If you're of the world, the world would love you. The world here has reference to those who are not born of the Spirit, those who do not know God, those who don't know Christ. 
and they're painted as the enemies of Christ and the enemies of the apostles in this passage. They are like those who can't believe because they're not of the sheep of the Father, and they're like those who can't come to Christ because God the Father has not drawn them in John chapter 6. Now let's go to John 17, verses 1 through 5, and just approach this verse by verse. These words spake Jesus, and lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. What hour had come in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the hour that had come in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ was the hour of his crucifixion, the hour of his offering. You see, the timetable of his work, his ministry, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, his resurrection, the timetable of all of that to Christ was not hidden. He knows when his time is, and he knew many, many times when his time had not yet come. There were several times that people came to do violence to him, and he merely passed through the midst of them. There was a time in John 10, as we read last week, that the Jews took up stones to stone him because he claimed to be deity, claimed to be one with the Father. Well, Jesus wasn't to die by stoning. He was to die on a cross. And so they were unsuccessful in their attempt to stone him because his time had not yet come. There were times that they wanted to throw him off a cliff, times that they conspired all sorts of things against Christ, but his time wasn't yet come. Here, his time has come. He knows the time of the crucifixion is nigh, and so he begins to pray to his Father in the presence of his disciples. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. Jesus prays for the Father to glorify him and for his work to glorify his Father. Now, it's beautiful to know that after the crucifixion of Christ, in which he was beaten, scourged, lied about, mocked, exposed to public shame, after the crucifixion of Christ came the exaltation of Christ. As the Lord Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he was exalted. Now, regarding this glory and this exaltation, Notice verse 5, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So the glory that Christ is asking for here to be glorified is not in a sense that he had never experienced before, but he's asking the Father to restore unto him the glory that he had with the Father before the world was. You see, God exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Before the foundation of the world, God the Father was God the Father. God the Son was God the Son. God the Spirit was God the Spirit. God hasn't changed in his fundamental makeup. Jesus is clearly divine. There are no gods formed after the Lord. He is the only God. And so the concept of Jesus ascending to Godhood is heresy. The concept of Jesus being lesser than God or less than eternal is heresy. Jesus is God incarnate, the Word that was with God, that was God, that was with God, made flesh, dwelling among us. And as John says in 1 John chapter 1, we looked at him, we heard him, our hands handled him. Christ, before the world began, had glory with his Father before the world was. Now, Christ laid aside his glory as he was born into the world, made of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Ghost in the womb of a virgin named Mary. He laid aside his glory. He condescended to men of low estate. But please understand that he did not lay aside his divinity 
nor did he lay aside his nature, his divine nature. Sometimes I hear preachers make careless statements such as that, that Jesus laid aside his nature as he was born of a woman. And if you get to digging really deep in their theology, many times they're guilty of certain heresies as it relates to the Trinity, whether it be modalism, Sabellianism, Arianism, Gnosticism. When you begin digging deeper, you realize that some people who make such statements really don't believe in the Trinity. They don't believe in the triunity. They're not Trinitarian, and so they have an unsound view of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, these three being one, but at the same time, these three also being three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christ laid aside his glory, but not his divinity or his nature. He was still God as he was here. The Word was made flesh, but the Word was made flesh. He was still God as he was here. And again, as we referred back to the statement, hypostatic union, you have the Son of God, which is a God-man, completely God, 100% God, completely man, 100% man, united together in union in the hypostatic union, the combination of these two natures, his divine nature and his human nature. And so his petition to the Father is to restore the glory that he had before the world began. Verse 2. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. The first thing I want to notice here is the Father giving Christ power over all flesh. While the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are co-equal and co-eternal, as the Son is incarnate in the world, he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And so as a human being, he is completely subordinate to his Father. He came not to do his own will, but the will of the Father which sent him, as we saw in John chapter 6. Now, please understand that Christ is not eternally subordinate to his Father. Christ is subordinate to his Father as he was incarnate here. But Christ, as in the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, the Word that was made flesh, he is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father, just as the Holy Spirit is co-equal with him and the Father and co-eternal with him and the Father. And so in his work here, as he is submitting to the will of the Father, come to do the Father's will and not his own will, he was given power by his Father over all flesh. Now listen to this. This is our statement of sovereign grace, that Christ, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Christ came to give eternal life to as many as the Father has given him. Now, we've referred to this fact in this series, and we will continue to refer to this fact in this series because it's very important theologically. It's very important for us to have a biblical understanding, a biblical framework of salvation, the Word of God, our interpretation of the world, life in general around us, the work of Christ. It's very important for us to understand what Jesus just said. The Father gave him power over all flesh. Now, again, Christ is omnipotent, Revelation 19.6. All power is given me in heaven and in earth, Matthew chapter 28. He has power over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as the Father had given him. So the first question that we want to ask, as we have already in this series, when did God the Father give people to his Son to save? Well, according to Titus chapter 1, God, before the foundation of the world, promised eternal life. Titus Chapter 1 and verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began. When did God promise eternal life? He promised eternal life before the foundation of the world. More specifically, 
to get into a little bit more detail. And we have read this passage several times on the radio recently. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. God the Father is the first he there. God the Father hath chosen us in him, Christ Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And you might think to yourself, well, God chose me to that, but I don't feel very holy, and I don't feel very without blame. Well, and that's true. In your life, you are simultaneously justified and yet sinful in your own personal behavior. But through the death of Christ, God views you. He sees you as if you have committed no sin at all. You see, upon the cross of Calvary, Jesus died for our sins as if he had committed our sins, though he had none of his own. And in this transaction between God the Son and God the Father, as our sinfulness was placed upon him, as the sin bearer, his righteousness was given to us. You have this exchange of the righteousness of Christ and the sinfulness of man that took place upon the cross of Calvary. And so even though we sin throughout our lives as followers of Christ, even when we would do good, evil is present with us. We have a nature of sin until our bodies are deceased or we are glorified. Even though we don't feel holy and without blame, we are holy and without blame before him in love because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice that God the Father chose people in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and without blame and predestinated them, said their destiny beforehand. Don't be afraid of that word. That word does not teach people are predestined to hell. People in hell are judged according to their works. To the contrary, God has predestinated, set the destiny before the foundation of the world for his children after this world is destroyed, that they would be adopted by Christ, or to put it the way Romans chapter 8 puts it, we will be conformed to the image of Christ. Our destiny has been set from before the foundation of the world, After this world is destroyed and we are resurrected in glorified bodies, we will go to that glorious new heavens and new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness to which we were predestinated unto before God even created this universe to begin with. Now, as we read John 17, verses 2 and 3, "...as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him, when God gave these people to Christ, is before the foundation of the world." Now, notice how this is contrasted in John chapter 17 and verse 9 with the world again. And in this message and in this prayer, the word world has reference to the wicked. This is not the world that God so loved. This is a different world, much like in 1 John, where the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. I pray for them, Jesus says in John 17, 9. Who is them? The disciples, those that the Father gave him. I pray not for the world but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. You see, here the word world is defined as the wicked, those who are worldly, those who are yet in their sins. Christ prays not for the world, but he prays for the disciples. He prays for those that God the Father had given him in his day all the way through our day. Jesus is even praying for you and for me here in this passage. Now, what about what they receive from him? As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. What is this eternal life? This eternal life is that they might know thee the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. 
Eternal life is the intimate, personal, firsthand knowledge of God to know him. And according to Hebrews chapter 8, every covenant person will know him from the least to the greatest because he writes his laws upon their heart, their mind, and their inward parts. Eternal life is the knowledge of God. Eternal life is to know God. Now, notice this next statement, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent, to know God the Father is to know God the Son, and to know God the Son is to know the Holy Spirit. In other words, you don't just know the Father, but not the Son or the Spirit. You don't just know the Spirit, but not the Son or the Father. To know one is to know God, and to know God is to know Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We'll close today with an observation from John 17 and verse 4. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Jesus Christ always completely and totally finished the work that the Father sent him to do. Whether it was to found his church or preach this gospel or overturn the money changers in the temple, to rebuke the Pharisees, to love the disciples, to heal the sick, to die upon a cross, or to save his people from their sins, Christ always finished his Father's work. It is finished. Again, I'm Ben Winslet, thanking you for listening to Words of Grace today, inviting you to write, let me know that you've received the broadcast, and also to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. An online directory is available at marchtozion.com. Address your correspondence to Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741, or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.